0: Testament in general and I want to help us to get a handle on reading the Old Testament I don't know if you've had this experience this is, I, I found this quite a unique moment I, I have a friend and um, often I have I have some friends but one particular friends all right One particular friend who would read a book and could never get all the way through the book. And so she would start the book, and she would get two or three chapters into the book. And then by the third chapter, she must have read the end of the book. Otherwise, she couldn't endure the rest of the book. Right? Cora knows what I'm talking about. We kind of do that with the Bible quite a lot. We've got this whole book of God's story. And his revelation to us. And we spend 90% of our time in the last quarter of it. And I think it's probably because we find it difficult to read and to appreciate the goodness of the Old Testament. And what's in there. I think one of the things I think we need to to work on as Christians is, is to learn how to enjoy the Old Testament for what it is. How do we begin to appreciate? How do we to recognize the role that it needs to play in our life and the relevance that it still has for us? And so I want to talk a little bit about that today. I want to talk about how we're going to get a good handle on the Old Testament, why we need to be able to understand it, why, why God wrote it, why it's still relevant for us, why it still speaks to us and how God speaks to us through it. And my hope is that um, as we do that, it's going to grow in you a passion and an enjoyment of the Old Testament as you read it. So my preach this morning is a little bit less like a preach and a little bit more like a teach. So my apologies, we're not in school, right? This is not a lecture, but I do, there's going to be a bit more information. And it's a little bit like, um, you know, that old analogy, if you can teach a man to fish or, or you can give him a fish. And uh, my hope is that I'm going to teach you to fish in the Old Testament, and rather than share my latest catch with you, and you're going to be able to plumb lots and lots of goodness from the Old Testament yourself. So the PowerPoint as well is also going to be a little different. Normally it's quite sparse. This time there's going to be some information on it. If at the end maybe I've said something useful and you want to get hold of it, then uh, by all means let me know, and I'm happy to email it to you. Um, but I trust that as we we dig into the Old Testament a bit this morning and. And how to read the Old Testament, we're hopefully going to grow in our enjoyment and passion of the Old Testament. So, so let's jump in a little bit. And the first thing that, I, that I, I think we need to know and recognize as we look at the Old Testament is that we need to understand that the Bible is actually a story. First and foremost, the Bible is a story. It's, it's the story of how God and, and mankind have interacted over the centuries. And if you want to properly understand the New Testament, you can't do that without properly understanding the Old Testament. Because if you look at the Bible, the Bible has, it has a setting. It has a plot. It has main auxiliary characters. It has a climax. All right? There's a prologue in the Bible. Anyone want to tell me what they think the plot? What's the plot line of the Bible? Okay, Jesus is part of the plot. I would say Jesus is a main character in the plot, right? Salvation, right? Why do we need salvation to bring people back to God? Because there's been an estrangement from God. Because mankind and God are no longer together as God originally intended, right? Yeah, Steve. Yeah, there's a there's a battle of good over evil that happens both cosmically and in our hearts. That's a part of the storyline of the Bible that impacts. Anyone want to pick a few of the main characters? In the story of the Bible, right? We've got Jesus. Jesus, main character, number one. There are two other very obvious ones. Okay, the Father and the Spirit. There we go. Those are the two other obvious ones. But we've got Abram. We've got Moses, right? The devil. the devil, a significant character, Lucifer, right? Anyone want to have a guess? What's the plot twist? What's the plot twist in the Scriptures? The resurrection, the resurrection? yeah. That's definitely a plot twist, do the new covenant. I don't know that that's a plot twist. I think that's the development of the main story. What about how the, the messianic king came in a way that was very different to what everyone expected, right? As you look through the Old Testament, there's this big build-up. We're going to look at that a little bit in a moment. And they're expecting David's like ancestor to come and to sit and to reign on the throne of David. And instead they get Jesus. Everyone's like, huh? Where's Where's the kingdom? Where's the power and the authority? And they haven't seen it yet. Okay. So we're going to look a little bit at that. I mean, one of the things that's really helpful for us, you think about the characters in the story of the Bible. God is the main character throughout the Scriptures, and He never changes. Who He is never changes. It's one of my favorite Scriptures from Malachi, right? And if we want to understand God properly, we shouldn't ignore 75% of his, His, like, screen time. If it's like going to watch a play and there's four acts in the play and you only watch the last one and afterwards, yeah, you were really great in the last, I mean, I didn't watch the first three, but the last act was excellent. We've got to follow the whole story to see what God is really doing. So I want to I unpack a few of these things. We're going to look at the prologue, the setting. We're going to talk a little bit about the buildup and, and some of the characters along the way. And um, then we're going to talk a little bit about some, some helpful tools as you try and read and understand the Old Testament. What are some of the things you can do to help the Old Testament come to life? So the first thing is, is to talk a little bit about the setting where the story of the Bible takes place. Right? And so if you could put the map up for us there, Chris. Um, this is a map. It's called the Fertile Crescent. Right? And in the ancient world, this was a very significant uh, piece of land. You had the um, eastern empires to the right of that where ultimately Persia came from and Babylon and all those guys. They sit in between the two rivers there in Mesopotamia. Right and Then of course you've got India and China to the right of that. Above that you've got Asian minor and to the left of that you've got the Greeks. And then down at the bottom you've got Africa. This p- section of land was one of the It was one of a very arable section of land where you could cultivate crops, grow a lot of things. There's there's a desert around it. There's mountains on the other side. And so that was a very populated space where a lot of people existed. And if you needed to get from one major area to another major area, two of those major trading routes ran through the land of Israel, the land of Cana. Uh, And so what you have in Israel is it's not an arbitrary setting. But God has placed his people in the centerpiece, in the focal point of the ancient world. So that as they, God is working with them, they are constantly coming into contact with people from all over the place. Because people had to travel through there. They couldn't go through the desert. It's not pleasant. There's nowhere to eat unless the Lord provides food every morning for you. Right? There's nothing to drink unless the Lord makes water come out of the rocks. So people wouldn't go through the desert. they travel up along that strip and across to the right or up and to the left. So that was a really significant space. And if you look, Israel's borders kind of um, are most of the thin space from the bottom of the green up towards the top and where you see the writing of the Euphrates River kind of arcs to the left there. That's kind of the land that was Israel, plus or minus, right? And, and this is where the story of the Bible takes place. So you've got major trade routes. You've got a lot of neighbors. You've got people traveling through this space. This is a real center in the ancient world. Now, I found this graphic in, in a book that I was reading, and I, and I want to talk us through it because it's really helpful. It's going to talk us a little bit about the timeline of the Old Testament. I'm going to move this because it's in the way. Oh, is that better? Okay. Don't worry. It'll be fine. Okay. Well, I know the writing might be a little small. There we go. Ah, thanks, Chris. Good skills there. Okay, so on the left, we're starting, and we've got the prologue of the Bible. And the prologue really is the first 11 chapters of the Bible. That sets the scene before the major plot developments of the Bible begins to happen. And can you think about some of the things that happen in those first 11 chapters, right? The first account we have is creation, All right? It's really significant, it's the most significant part. And then after creation, we have the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. All of those are significant failures on man's part. Right? The fall was started, everything was perfect. Man was with God in the garden, everything was beautiful. And then sin entered the world. And so after the fall, then you get the flood because sin grew so exponentially that the whole world was covered in sinfulness. And so God had to begin again. And so it's again man's failure. Then we get the Tower of Babel. And so the world has been restarted, men are coming together be- and they begin to build this tower and it's in their pride that they seek to reach up to God in heaven and so God comes down and again there's judgment that happens on sin and men are scattered across the world. That's the, that's the build up, the intro to the story that happens and you'll notice I've put in brackets there, um, those things happen to Adam, to man, right? And so we're going to see at the end of the story how that's mirrored in what happens with Jesus. And then we get the first beginning of the story. And so in each of these sections, we kind of divided them up into 500-year segments. And the Old Testament spans this journey of about 2,000 years, Um, give or take a little bit, because there's time between the prologue and um, the beginning of Abraham that's not counted in that time. But in each of those moments, there's a significant moment that happens. There's a significant leader that exists, or person, player, plot, character, right? Then there's a significant type of leader, which is the one in all caps. And then underneath that, you've got kind of the length of the journey of those leaders, if that makes sense. So we start at the beginning. You can go back up for us, Chris. We start about 2,000 years BC. One of the most significant moments is the election of Abraham. So you remember in Genesis chapter 12, God appears to Abraham. Now, I want you to just think for a moment, what happens if we didn't have the first 11 chapters of the Bible, if we just, the Bible started in Genesis chapter 12, would it be important to us? I mean, it's a bit difficult to see its significance because it becomes the story of a guy and his family that met with uh, the God that he believed in and, and disconnects from the rest of us, right? So the significance of the first 11 chapters is to help us to recognize that chapter 12 starts the journey of God's reconciliation, for the brokenness of humanity. Right? So it's a really significant moment. God chooses Abraham. And in, those, in the first section of that story, the book of Genesis really from 12 to 50, tells the story of Abraham's descendants. And so it goes through Abraham, goes through Isaac, and it goes through Jacob. They're the patriarchs of the nation of Israel. They're the sons of Abraham. And they begin to unfold the story of God in bringing redemption to the people of humanity through the family of Abraham, because that's the promise. That's the blessing that's given to Abraham in the beginnings, you remember. Go into this land that I will show you, and I will make you a blessing to all nations. That's the promise that Abraham gets. That's what he begins to do. And so then, of course, we get to Joseph, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, and they lead the family of Abraham into Egypt, right? Because there's a famine, and we'll talk more about it in the sermon series that's coming. But they go into Egypt, and then for 400 years, we know nothing. God is silent. There's this period of time where the Israelites live in Egypt, and they progress from being a group, a small family of probably 70 to 80 people, to a small nation that threatens the Pharaoh of Egypt 400 years later because he's now concerned because of the millions of people that now exist in the land of Goshen. Uh, And so during that time, there's about 400 years. God is silent. We don't know what God was saying. They didn't know what God was saying. There were no prophets. No one was speaking to the people of Israel. During this time, the histories of the nations of Egypt, India, China are beginning to develop. We're beginning to hear a bit more about them. But that's not recorded for us in the scriptures. After that 400-year gap, we get to the next kind of major time period. And this is, this is characterized by the exodus of the people leaving the land of Egypt. Right? And so they, they leave Egypt as this big moment of deliverance. Moses is the key leader. right? He's, he's the key figure. And, of course, there are others that follow him, guys like Joshua. And then, of course, we get some of the judges that then flow through um, in that space. And that goes through from... Moses to Joshua and you've got Aaron as the priest and a significant collection of leaders through to Samuel at the end of the period of the Judges. Right, And so they use the the books of the Old Testament that fit into this part, are the Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All four of those books exist during this framework of Israel's history, during the time of the Exodus, when they've been called out of the land of Egypt, they're wandering in the wilderness. A lot of it takes place at the mountain of Sinai in the wilderness, where God speaks with his people. A lot of that, a lot of the... um, Exodus is focused into that space. A lot of Deuteronomy actually comes in a particular space where Moses has two major speeches with the people and actually doesn't span the whole length of their journey, but is a summary of the things that Moses has instructed the people in. And it's just before um, he, got, he is unable to go into the promised land, he gives his final speech in Deuteronomy and shares with the Israelites all that God has said with them. That's the second period. And then, so you see there the other books, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth also fall into this section. So after Moses, he leads them into the wilderness, to the edge of the promised land. Joshua takes them into the promised land. They begin to conquer the promised land. They cease kind of uh, under Joshua. Joshua dies. And after that, a collection of judges get up to rule the nation of Israel. And they continue the conquest into the promised land, but also fail a lot. And the story of the book of Judges is the story of a people that failed before the Lord, that f- stopped seeking the face of God. So God brings up one of their neighbors that they were supposed to have eradicated to judge them. They all get oppressed. They get real sad after it couple of decades of being oppressed and so they cry out to the Lord and they repent of this and the Lord sends a new judge as a deliverer and he raises them up and they break the yoke of the oppressor and they follow the Lord while the judge is alive and then the judge dies and they fail to learn from history and the cycle repeats itself over and over and over again. So can you see the story of the Bible developing in this moment where God has redeemed his people, he's taken them out of Egypt, he's brought them into the promised land and he said to them, guys, here's the one thing I want you to do, follow me. Seek my face, acknowledge me in all things, and I will bless you beyond your wildest dreams. And the story of the book of Judges is how they fail to do that over and over and over again. And so it leads them to this point where the, the nation cries out for a king. Right? They cry out for a king. And actually, I, I had always thought that ki- kingship was a, a failure on, on Israel's part because God had said, I will be your king, and I will guide you and lead you, and you need to trust and rely on me. Interestingly, though, when God gives them to the law, I realize in Deuteronomy, actually he's already given them provision for a king. He says, when you have a king, you should act in this way and your king should be like this. You're going to be different from the kings of the lands around you. And so we get to this point where the people are so frustrated and tired in the period of the judges. They're tired of of failing. They're tired of not inheriting the fullness of the kingdom that God has has given them, this land that they're supposed to inherit, that that they call out to God and they say, Lord, won't you raise up a king? Over the nation of Israel to lead us and to guide us. And so that's where we get King Saul is the first king that joins. um, and David is, of course, the the key king that happens in this space. This is the height of the the nation of Israel. This is the high point of the nation of Israel. They have now moved into the promised land. David is a godly leader, he leads the people in worshiping God. They take over most of the land that God has called them to. Uh, They establish themselves as a nation. The temple gets built under Solomon, David's. Uh, first like ancestor or first heir if you will and the kingdom of Israel is now established and this is the height of what God this is what they've been hoping for that they would go into the land that they would have peace in the land that they would be blessed by God as they were able to worship him in peace they're no longer wandering they're no longer separate tribes but they're a nation together right? this all happens under the the leadership of David and so you'll see there, you've got um, Saul, David, and Solomon are the significant kings. But in the same time period, of course, that doesn't always go as they had planned and intended. And so after David comes Solomon. And Solomon starts really well, but he, he kind of fails towards the end. And he, he gets lost and distracted and starts dating women from all over the world. Right? And they cause him to, to worship and to follow other gods. And so the worship of other gods begins in the nation. And eventually at the end of his life, the blessing of the Lord has left him. And so instead of the nation of Israel continuing, the the nation separates, and you'll see that we've got Israel and Judah, and the ten tribes to the north separate from the two tribes to the south. And I think it's, help me if I get this wrong, guys, Jeroboam is one, Rehoboam is the other. I want to say Rehoboam was north and Jeroboam was south. looking good? Okay, I I think I might be right. If I'm not, go and read it in the Kings, and you'll find out for yourself, right? But during this period, this is where we get 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles describes this period, even though it's actually written later. It's written as as a prophetic look back over the history of Israel to understand what's been happening. During this time as well, you've got the book of Psalms, the book of Song of Songs, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Psalms primarily written by David, but there are numerous other authors in it as well. Song of Songs, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, mostly written by Solomon. So these books, when you're reading them, recognize they come from this era of Israelite history. They come from this time where where the nation of Israel is enjoying the prosperity of God, the favor of God as he's established the kingdom in Israel. But of course, if you continue reading the story of kings, you'll find that as time goes on over and over again, the kings and the, the Davidic line and the the line up in Samaria, they tend towards neglecting God and moving away from God and serving other gods. And so as you, as you track that over time, there are there are blips where a righteous king appears and leads the nation back towards the Lord. And every time the king is righteous, the people follow the king's lead and they begin to serve the Lord again. But then almost invariably after you've had a good king, the the son that follows him is even worse than all the kings that have come before and leads the nation back into idolatry and back away from God. And so over time, what happens is we move to this, this pivotal moment in the nation of Israel that, where the exile happens. You you're familiar with the idea of the exile? Right. At some point, and I'm, well, I'm going to try and get dates right again, but I think at about 650-ish BC, the northern kingdom gets exiled by the Assyrians. The Assyrians come in and they wipe out the 10 tribes of Israel, right? And most of the nation of Israel is now destroyed. There are a few remnants that are left in the land. Some of them get taken over to this foreign power, Assyria. Remember in the Fertile Crescent, now we're talking between those two rivers, the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers. Somewhere in there is Assyria, right? And they've come in, they've invaded the lands of Judah, they've taken out the 10 tribes. And this is allows the prophets now to begin to speak. And so the prophets have been speaking. As you'll see there, Joel, Amos, Hosea, Micah, and Isaiah, most of their prophecies occur before the exile of the people of Israel. And so they're warning the people, and they're saying, guys, you're living, and you're not serving God in a godly way. You're not following the Lord. You're serving other gods. You're worshiping other gods, and you need to be careful because what you are doing is going to cause God to come in judgment of you. Which is why when you read these prophets, a lot of what they say is very negative. A lot of what they say is a warning. It's woe to you. It's watch out. Because the nation of Israel at the time in which it was written was straying away from God. And so they're calling people to come back to the Lord. To watch out for what's happening. Right, you, yeah, you can see there on the, on the right hand side as well in the orange, Jonah, Nahum, Obadiah, Habakkuk and Zephaniah. Those are also prophets that are before the exile. Right, but then the exile happens, and the northern kingdom gets taken out by Assyria. And Judah's laughing, right, because Judah thinks, well, they were an ungodly collection of people, and they deserve it. And the prophets continue, and they're like, guys, you need to recognize that God's not finished. You aren't that different. You're actually not as righteous as you think you are. You need to deal with the stuff that's going on in your midst, because you're not following my ways. You're not living how I called you to live. And as that's happening, eventually, in about 500 years, and I think 90 BC, somewhere around there, um, the Babylonian Empire has taken over the Syrian Empire. And they come in and they take out the southern kingdom as well. And the nation of Judah now gets exiled to Babylon. And it's in that place of exile that you now find Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. They're prophesying in that space. Right? At this point in time, there's no longer a king over Israel. They have puppet kings, but they're no longer a significant force. And after the exile, it's the priests that now rise to the fore, Nehemiah and Ezra. And they come to the people and they say, guys, this happened because we as the people of God disobeyed God and we failed to follow his laws. And so what we need to do is make sure that we do everything that the law is has said. And so that's why when we get to the time of Jesus in the New Testament, you've got the scribes and the Pharisees holding sway over the people of Israel because the people realized that it was because they'd failed to follow the law that they'd been judged and taken into exile. And so now they got so zealous to make sure that they followed the law that they got, they got over-focused on the letter of the law and they missed the heart of the law and the law became the governing thing of Israel. And so the priests were the people that, that really played the leading role during that time. And so you'll see at the end there, you've got Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. They, they are prophets that speak after the exile has happened, calling, looking, um, looking back over the exile and saying, guys, you need to understand, this is what God was doing. This is why it happened. Daniel and Esther are actually written from exile. They're written from Babylon. They reflect what's been going on to the people as they're in exile. And then, of course, Ezra and Nehemiah tell the story of the people coming back when Cyrus has taken over the Babylonian empire and they begin to to rebuild the nation of Israel. And after Malachi, Malachi being the last book in the Old Testament, you've got another 400-year gap where God is silent. And and God doesn't speak. And during this time, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, they're beginning to speak, and Buddha and Confucius, and Alexander the Great, so all busy happening, Julius Caesar's busy happening. Do you notice that none of that is recorded for us in the Scriptures? Because whilst it was significant in world history, it wasn't significant to God and what he was doing. He's got a story that's progressing, and his story ended at this point with Malachi, and now it created this again, a 400-year gap. Isn't it interesting? There's a 400-year gap in the beginning, and there's a 400-year gap at the end. And what happened after the first one? The first gap, we had the exodus, this great deliverance of God's people. After the second gap, Jesus comes, and there's a great deliverance of God's people. Do you see the story that, that is beginning to be built. In the, in the beginning, we had the first Adam, and Adam fell, and there was sin that entered into the world, and there was death that entered into the world, and there was the fall and the flood and the judgment. And then Jesus enters the world, and he dies as well, but he is reincarnated, well, he's resurrected, not reincarnated. Right, let's get that right. And he ascends to be at the Father's side. Right? And he comes as the second Adam. He comes as the replacement of the first Adam to sh- as the last Adam, to show us what, it, what God always intended. And I hope as you've kind of looked at the slide, it's given you a bit of a picture of the story that is the Scripture. Because right? that's when we read the Old Testament, it's telling us the story. And so I want to flip to the next slide, because I found this a bit of a helpful way to think about the Scriptures, and particularly think about the Old Testament. If you think about it as a, as a person, The the bones of the person, the skeleton, the structure of the Old Testament is contained from Genesis to Kings. Genesis to Kings tells you the story of what actually happened in the Old Testament. It's mostly narrative. It's descriptive. This is what happened and the people went here. And then God raised up this person and then this person did that. It's the story of what happened. And then the flesh on top of those bones is the prophets and the writings that come around that. It's what God had to say whilst that was going on. Right? It's what people had to wrestle with as they were in this space where things were really difficult and David didn't know what to do because his enemies were all around him and he reflected on what was going on. And so if you look at it that way, you can see if you, if you read from Genesis to Kings, you'll get the story of the Old Testament. If you read the writings, the prophets, Proverbs, Esther, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, many of the others, all of the prophets that exist, in, you'll begin to see what God had to say, what people felt about what they were going through and as they were working out that story. If you just read the flesh and you don't have the bones, you're going to be really confused. And you're not going to know where the muscle goes. To so push my analogy a little bit. <clears throat> yeah. Okay, so well, I want to I just talk briefly because I see we're at already 11 o'clock. So I want to talk a little bit briefly. Give me 10 minutes and we'll try and talk about a few handles that you can use as you read the Old Testament to help it be enjoyable as you read it. And and the first one is this, and it's maybe a bit of a sticky one for some of you, but I want to share it with you. Use a helpful translation when reading the Old Testament. Some of you may love the King James Bible. I'm not, I don't, not telling you not to use it because it's a bad Bible. I'm telling you not to use it because you're not Victorian and you don't speak that English anymore, and it's going to make it more difficult for you to understand what God has said. Right? There are other versions of the Bible that are. Much easier to read and just as accurate, if not more accurate. And I won't go into my spiel about translations. But I would really recommend what we call a dynamic equivalent translation for the Old Testament. It makes it a lot easier to read and a lot easier to understand. So the old, a dynamic equivalent like the NLT or the CEV, you know, when you read and you read that um, Tamar lay at Boaz's feet, you're like, okay, cool, so she slept by his feet. Actually, what that means is she had sex with him. Right? But you don't know that because you're not an Old Testament scholar and you don't understand Hebrew idioms, which is why the NLT translates it for you in a way that is more accurate to what you know and understand. Right. Then there are, there are other formal equivalent translations. That's more word-for-word translations. They're, they're very good, but a dynamic translation is more helpful when reading the Old Testament. Use both together if you like, just a good starting point. Secondly, you've got to bridge the gap between where we are now and the 4,000 years ago that the Old Testament existed in, right? And so we need to try and understand what the Old Testament meant to the people that it was written for, and once we understand that, we're able to understand what it means for us today, right? You can't find a meaning in the Old Testament that wasn't true for what the people at the time received of it, right? That's not how the Scripture was written. And you need to overcome these three main barriers, history, culture, and worldview. And so there's some, perhaps the easiest way to understand that world is to spend time in the Old Testament, to read it, read the story, read the story over and over, get familiar with how things began to work, because nothing teaches you like the Old Testament like the Old Testament itself. Right? It's a great... Spe- try and read more than just a verse or two here or there. Try and read more than just a psalm separated by itself. Try and read a few chapters. Try and read a book. Try and read some ch- chunks. So you get the picture and the story that's developing because that's how it's been written for us to understand that. I discovered this in, in doing some of the reading for this. You can read the entire Bible in 80 hours or less. Right? 80 hours. can have read the entire scripture from Genesis to Revelation. David Pawson did it when they started uh, a new church building. They decided what they're going to do is they're going to get together and they're going to read through the scripture. It took them four days, and each person read for 15 minutes and they read from Genesis to Revelation, 24 hours a day. You can do it in 80 hours. You want to read the whole scripture. Hmm? Well, probably not. I think you need a bit more time for that, Jen. But And that, that anticipates the second idea there. Read inquisitively. When you're reading, look at the cross-references in your Bible. If you're reading the prophet Isaiah, try and ask yourself the question, when did Isaiah write? Who is he writing to? Who's the king that he's addressing in this moment? What's happening in the nation of Israel? What's happening on their military side? What's happening economically to the people? How is the leadership treating the poor in the the city at the time? As you read that and you know that, it's going to make the prophecies of Isaiah a lot richer for you. Because you're going to understand why he's writing and rebuking the people. You're not just going to say, woe is me, woe is me, woe is me, woe is me. Right? But you're going to understand why Isaiah was woe, why the Lord was crying out over his people because of what they were doing. Sometimes you're going to need a little bit of help to do that because it's not always easy or obvious. Right? And So find a study aid to help you as you're reading the Old Testament. There are a collection of, of books that I'm going to recommend. I'm going to put them up in the last slide. You can have a look at them. Right? But there's some study Bibles you can get. There's some introductory resources that just help put things in place for you so as you're reading you don't have to read the whole of kings to find which king isaiah was speaking to but you're able to go back and see that some might say that's cheating a little bit right we've got to bridge the gap a little bit the third third thing i want to say is pay attention to the genre that you're reading because we don't read poetry the same way we read a newspaper We expect when we read poetry that there will be metaphors and personifications and hyperboles and similes. We expect that to be a part of how we read poetry. We don't expect that in a newspaper. We don't expect the newspaper to exaggerate things for effect, although unfortunately the media today kind of does that anyway, which is a bit of a hack. But the way in which something is written tells you how you need to gain understanding from it. When David writes, the Lord is my shepherd, he doesn't mean that God is dressed like a 1,000 BC shepherd and he has a flock of sheep that he spends his day looking after. It means just like a shepherd cares for the sheep, the Lord cares for us. That's quite an obvious one, but just as a starting point. When you're reading the Old Testament law, this is sometimes a tricky one. What is the role that the Old Testament law plays for us today as New Testament Christians? Well, it's no longer binding on us. The law is no longer the way in which we are deemed righteous by God. But Jesus made that clear, the writer to the Hebrews made that expressly clear, where he said things like, when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed as well. When he spoke of a new covenant, he first made the old one obsolete, and what is obsolete is aging and will soon disappear. We are no longer righteous by the old covenant, but the old covenant does reflect the lawmaker. The law was given by God. It reflects his character and nature. It was given by him to help his people live like he is, Right. and and just for the purposes of this morning, there are are three distinct categories in the law. There's the ceremonial law, there's the civil law, and there's the moral law. The easiest way to to wrestle with that, and it can be more nuanced if you really want it to be, but uh, when it comes to the moral law, it still reflects everything about who God is. The civil and the ceremonial law, the ceremonial law reflects a system of worship that's no longer in force and is no longer applicable to us. The civil law still reflects the heart of God for us, but it Again, it's no longer enforced on us. We're no longer a nation that exists under God. We are the people of God, and we want to live to abide by His heart. So what do you do when you encounter a law like this one in Exodus 21 about an ox that gores man, men and women to death? Right? Here's what it says. When an ox gores a man or woman to death, the ox should be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore people in the past, you know, you've just got this violent ox sitting in your field, right? Then the owner has been warned and hasn't kept it in and it kills someone. Then the ox must be stoned and its owner must also be put to death. And if a ransom is imposed on him, then he must give for the redemption of his life, whatever is imposed on him. And if it gores a man's son or daughter to death, he will be dealt according to the same rule. You know, is this law in Exodus, is it only helpful for people that have farms today and cattle? Is it still helpful for us? How do we see the heart of God behind a law about an ox that kills its neighbors, unfortunately? It's about recognizing why God gave the law in the first place. It's a bit of a funny one as well, even though talking about death is not really a funny thing. At the heart of this law is to reinforce the sanctity of life. God created human beings to be sacred, and their lives are to be sacred. And so you, as a person, are responsible for your actions in order to ensure and safeguard the lives of others around you. So if you had to say, How does this apply to us today? I could ask you, Well, how do you drive? Do you have respect for the sanctity of the lives of others around you? Because that's the heart of God. Okay. When we look at the narrative in the Old Testament, so primarily you're talking here from Genesis to, to Kings, Chronicles. Like, those are the stories of the Old Testament, the things that happened. There's a lot of weird stuff that happened in the Old Testament, Right? There was a guy that cut up his wife into 12 pieces and sent her around to everyone in Israel. That was a weird thing to do. There were Lot's daughters decided that they weren't, there weren't any men around, so they were going to sleep with their dad. Right? Solomon lived a good life, but then also fell away horribly. Like, How do we interpret the stories of the Old Testament? How do we find meaning in them? I think the first thing to recognize is they're written as examples for us. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and they passed through the sea and they were baptized by Moses and they all ate the same spiritual food and drink and they drank from the rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. But nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So don't be idolaters as some of them were. As you read the Old Testament, it's written, and its story provides an example for us to reflect on and to say, what did they do? Where did they go right or wrong, and how do I do that in my own life? All right. It's helpful, the more you know of the Old Testament, the better you're able to discern what happened, whether it was right or wrong. For instance, if you know that in Leviticus 18, it expressly forbids incest, then whilst you might be tempted to think, shame, poor Lot's daughters, there were no other men around, they didn't know what to do, like maybe it was okay. If you, if you know that Leviticus 18 forbade it, then you will know that actually what they've done. This is not a good story. This is not something we should copy. Again, obvious example, right? But in a less obvious example, what do you do with the life of Solomon? How do you interpret Solomon's life? Well, you go back to Deuteronomy 17, and you know in Deuteronomy 17, you're told that a king shouldn't accumulate wealth for himself, nor should he have multiple wives or multiple horses, And then when you read the description of Solomon's life, you see that, yes, he started really well with the Lord, but he began to do all of those things. He began to accumulate wealth and wives and horses. And you realize actually in doing that, he's disobeyed God and he's moved away from God. So you're able to understand that actually what happened in his life and how he lived his life is not a great model for us to follow. He kind of says as much in Ecclesiastes as well. Just to unpack a little bit, what do you do with, with wisdom literature? How do you understand wisdom literature? This is sometimes very interesting. When you look at Proverbs, it's important to recognize Proverbs don't teach an absolute truth. Proverbs share what is generally true, a proverbial truth. This is generally the way in which things are. There are exceptions to those things, but recognize that. Those are proverbial truths. When you, when you come to the book of Job... And this is some, I have a beef with systematic theologians when they do this, is they'll take theology from the book of Job without recognizing that the way in which Job is presented is a dialogue and a dispute between Job and his friends. And Job is in a space where he is righteous before the Lord and he's arguing his case before God and his friends keep coming and they argue from the Proverbs. And they basically say, Job, this is what is, is right and true and this is how it must be, but that's, and so you must have sinned and done these things and Job hasn't. And the application is wrong. And then we'd say, if you just take verses from the speeches of one of his friends, you might get a wrong picture of what God thinks is right, because they were wrong when they spoke, and they were rebuked by God at the end of the book of Job. So understand what's going on in the book will be able to help you understand how to take what's being said and understand it properly. When it comes to prophecy, how do, we, how do we deal with prophecy? Well, we've said locate it in the space in which it's happening. Ask yourself if the judgment you're reading about has already happened. Has the event that precipitated the judgment happened already? Has Israel already been judged for those things? Well, go and find out what they were doing and understand that. Does it talk about something future and something that's coming? Well, understand that in light of what Jesus and the New Testament writers teach about how the, the promises of the old are going to begin to impact the new. Be aware that in the Old Testament, the prophet spoke to a covenant nation. There was a people that was covenanted with God. We don't have a a God nation anymore. We now have a God people. And so the civil ramifications of that are slightly different. Also realize in the New Testament, judgment is often deferred. Whereas in the Old Testament, it would happen in temporal reality. In the New Testament, that gets stored up for the wrath of God that's coming in the great judgment when Jesus comes again. Okay, last thing we're speeding a little bit. I'm sorry, this is it. Okay, how do we understand Jesus in light of the Old Testament? Often you, will, you might read authors, I've encountered authors who say you can see Jesus in every text of the Old Testament, of the New Testament. Is that really true? What does it really mean? Well, Jesus said in, in John chapter 5, if you really believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. He tells the disciples on the road to Emmaus and he says he took them through the writings of Moses and the prophets and he explained from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus does exist and lives in the Old Testament. How do we as New Testament Christians see him as we read the Old Testament? Well, I think he occurs in three primary ways. The first is those passages that speak directly about Jesus that's coming. Right? They're prophetic passages and they speak either about the coming Um, king that's going to sit on David's throne, or they speak about the servant that's going to come and and help God's people. So Isaiah chapter 9 is one we often read at Christmas, Uh, but it's a a passage about the coming king, it's the coming Davidic Messiah, for to us a child is born, a son is given, the government will be upon his shoulders, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of his increase, of his government and peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with righteousness and justice. It's a prophecy about Jesus who's going to come as the promised Messiah. The promise that David was given that one of his descendants would sit on the throne. But then later on in Isaiah, you can read the story of the suffering servants. The servant who comes, my servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender shoot. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Jesus appears in prophetic passages, passages that speak about him. And if you read Matthew and Hebrews, you'll get a lot of those references because they all refer back to them. And if you read them inquisitively, you'll be able to go and to find the passages, look at the cross references in your Bible, you'll be able to connect those passages together. Secondly, sometimes you get a typological representation of the New Testament in the Old. This is a foreshadowing, something that happens in the Old Testament that reflects something that's going to happen to a greater degree in the New Testament. So in the Old Testament, we have the Exodus, where the people of God are taken up out of Egypt and delivered from slavery. There's this Passover meal where the angel of death passes over them, and they're not died, but they're spared. In the same way, we have the communion meal, where we recognize that we were spared because of Christ's blood that covers us, right? They were delivered from slavery to a Pharaoh. We are delivered from slavery to sin and to the devil. There's this picture of what happened in the Old Testament that's now reinforced in the new in a bigger and, and greater way. Jesus does this with the temple. And he says, the temple will be destroyed and rebuilt within three days. And his disciples said, when he said this, he was talking about himself, Showing that the temple was the place where the presence of God dwelt, where God was worshipped and received honor and glory. And now that's going to happen in Christ and through Christ himself. Paul takes that further and he says the church is the new temple of God. It's the new place where the presence of God dwells. It's this picture of the old being changed and reinforced in the new. You can see that in Hebrews chapter 9. It's all over in Hebrews chapter 9. But most of where we see Jesus in the Old Testament is we get this picture of salvation history, of how God is working with his covenant people to bring about the redemption of sins. And Jesus is the culmination, the ultimate solution to bring about the redemption of our sins and our brokenness. And he tried, and many things were done in the past. I don't want to say tried because God always knew what was going to happen. But many things were done. The law was given, right? Kings were elected, judges came. Prophets came and called out. And all the time, it never regenerated the heart of people. And so it all builds up to this moment where Jesus comes as the climax and the pinnacle of the revelation of God to finally redeem and restore his people to himself. That's, that's the heart of Jesus in the Old Testament. I hope that's been vaguely helpful for you this morning. Um, I know it's been a bit of a different session. We were a little bit rushed, and I apologize for that. If you would like some resources... Here are some resources that I can recommend. There are two study Bibles at the top of the list. I also looked at a couple of websites for different prices and put the best one on there for you so you can get an idea. Good Neighbors is a great bookshop if you want to buy Christian books. A great place. They're often very much cheaper than other spaces. The IVP Introduction to the Bible. It's a small little book, about 200 pages long, but it will paint the background for you and help you to place things into the right spaces. Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson is a much thicker book, but it's, a, it's all of his life's work that he's put into un, un, explaining and unpacking everything that's happened in each book of the Bible and how to frame it and understand it. Right? If you want to get a little bit more serious, you can buy books like the Old Testament Survey. This is like a proper theological textbook, so it is quite serious, but it is very in-depth, very good. Right? You can get the Introduction to Biblical Interpretation. Again, very serious, very textbooky, but very helpful. So those are some aids. I used most of those in in just putting this material together for you. So I just want you to know it wasn't me. Um, It was accumulated wisdom from many, many people. But those are some very helpful things. Let's pray together and and draw our meeting to a close. Father, we just want to bless you and thank you that you make yourself known to us. That we have the privilege of living under the new covenants. Under the King, Jesus, who came and gave his life for our redemption. Jesus, we thank you. We bless you for it. Holy Spirit, we are so thankful and blessed that you are alive in us, that you have joined yourself to us because we've been made righteous by the Son. And we recognize, God, that we live in the culmination of a story that, where you've been working with our, our people for thousands of years. And we thank you for that. Lord, I want to pray for us as this church, as this congregation, that you would help us, God, to grow in our appreciation of the Old Testament. I pray, Lord, that as we read it, you would help it to come alive for us, for us to see the glory and the majesty and the splendor of God in amongst the pages of the story and the reflections that that we have in the Old Testament. Lord, God, help us to, to learn, to treasure the Old Testament, that we would love it, God, we would see the fullness of your goodness in it. And we would remember, Lord, that it is all pointing to you, Jesus. We ask this in your wonderful and your glorious name, King Jesus. Amen.